What's up, Trinity Church? Good to see you. <laughs> like, who is that? What's up, Transit Church? Y'all don't even know who you are. Good to see you. My name is Jeff. Um, turn your Bibles to the book of Titus, the letter of Paul to Titus. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 5 through 9 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, then down the center column of seats, there are a couple Bibles on top of each other. You're welcome to grab those, use it. Uh, Titus is going to be in the 800s, I think, in that fine print Bible. And you are also welcome to, to keep that if you don't have a Bible. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. If you're with us for the first time, we are going through a series in Titus, a five-week series, and we're looking at what it means to be a healthy church. Last week, we looked at uh, verses 1 through 4, which covered the greeting of Paul, where he's talking really about uh, this gospel-centered idea of discipleship that would lead to a church being healthy. And today we um, get in the, the first of several things that he says will lend to uh, an actual healthy, stable church that does what God has intended for it to do, making disciples as its mission, uh, making Jesus known in the world. And so we're going to look at healthy leaders today. Uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Read along with me. Here we go. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the day, a beautiful day that you've given us, and uh, we'll rejoice, as the psalmist says, and be glad in it. I thank you for the gathering of your church around your gospel and its word, that we might be um, encouraged and exhorted to leave this place filled with faith and hope uh, in all that you have done and all that you will do in our lives and in your world. But more importantly, Lord God, that we be uh, challenged to go and, and be on mission with you out in your world. And so, Lord, uh, as we come to the, the book of Titus again today, God, we pray that you'd give us eyes to see what you would have for us as a church, for us individually as we look at this uh, topic of being healthy leaders, and more importantly, that you would be praised as we worship you. And we pray this in the great name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Uh, most of you know this. If you haven't, here's some good news about me. I retired from the Army in 2008, and uh, uh, someone uh, encouraged us as we were preparing to retire, don't wait to the last minute to sort of get your house in order and then start living your, your retired life. So maybe half a year before we actually got out of the Army, um, we uh, were in Fayetteville, North Carolina. We found a house, ended up buying it and all that. And um, this house ended up being, I mean, our, I mean, if you think of retirement, dream house, the, I mean, the house that you want to spend your life in. You see your kids grow up, leave, come back, bring their kids. I mean, it's, it's this, this kind of house. Dutch colonial, one of a kind, um, just a lovely house. There's only one thing um, wrong with it. I mean, the yard sucked. It was, I mean, it's awful. Um, the, the yard did, uh, it, it didn't match the, the, just the, uh, the, the neat nature of 
of this pristine house in a pretty cool neighborhood. Um, dirt and pine straw, that's all the yard was. Uh, uh, I can remember the first time that Larissa and I came to, to see the house. It wasn't on the market. It was owned by uh, an old uh, elderly man uh, who had uh, retired as a banker, had lived there 10 years post his wife getting cancer and dying. And so he was holding on to the house for sentimental reasons. We drove up into the yard not knowing, I mean, we were like in the middle of the yard thinking that we were driving into the driveway. That's how bad the yard was. And so we ended up buying the house and uh, I, I just wanted to make the yard match the um, just the beautiful nature of this house. And so I, I had a landscaper. My uh, pastor friend of mine had gotten a, a, a landscaper friend of his, a guy by the name of Lee Holochak. Uh, Lee, ha Lee had every limb on his body was green. I mean, the guy just looked at something and it just it just flourished. And so I saw the uh, backyard of my pastor friend, how it just I mean, it was like magazine worthy after Lee reconstructed as like, I want you to come to my yard. And so Lee came, he looked at the yard and it's like, well, I mean, unless you cut some trees down, you aren't going to be able to do anything in your yard. So uh, I cut down 18. Oh, I didn't. I paid somebody to cut down. <laughs> if you want to get a profession uh, where you do little and get a lot of money, go into tree cutting. So I cut, I'm not even tell you how much crazy money I paid. But we cut down 18 trees, and then uh, we, uh, we put in a, oh, oh, I didn't. I hired somebody. <laughs> Lee found somebody to put in a tar and chip uh, driveway. Tar and chip, classic colonial. Uh, it's tar with layers of rot, uh, you know, at various gradients. Um, so it's kind of loose on the top. I mean, just beautiful. It wound all the way around to the back of our house. I'm this is a beautiful house. And I don't miss it, because I'm, you know, I'm in Northern Virginia now. Um, <laughs> So uh, we, we tore down overgrown hedges. We put a patio in the back. Um, Lee put up crepe myrtles and hydrangeas and azaleas and all these other flowers that I don't, I don't even know how to pronounce. And, uh, and then he laid some sod. And I, I mean, after he finished, I just stood back and was like, oh my gosh, look at my yard. And you, you know how competitive I am as a yard person. I was like, I got the best yard in the whole neighborhood. I was like, yes. But then I had a problem. I didn't know how to maintain that joker. <laughs> so <laughs> I had this beautiful, look, my dad, all my dad taught me how to do was cut grass. I can cut grass like a champ. I mean, I can cut some grass, but I didn't know anything about fertilizing and aerating and cutting and pruning. And I didn't know anything about that. So I called Leah. I was like, look, dude, I love my yard. I don't know what to do next. I didn't, know how to, I didn't even know how to water it. And so Lee walked me through. He came back over and just, you know, as the season called for it, he told me what to do. He'd write it down. And more than that, he, he, I mean, he, was, he like called me and pre, uh, prompted me when something strategic needed to happen to my yard. Pruning, cutting, fertilizing, all that stuff. And really what Lee was doing, you know, he was, he was both helping me establish and maintain a healthy and growing yard. And I say all that just to, this is what, this in a, in a, in a sense is what uh, Paul is doing for Titus. Uh, in, in all this book. He's writing uh, a letter to Titus. Paul had planted churches in Crete, and then he left Titus to, to finish what remained. And that's what we read in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so Paul is giving Titus some instructions, instructions on how to establish develop and maintain a, a healthy church, almost like Lee helped me do with my yard there in North Carolina. I, I want you to notice a couple things right up front 
when we think about starting something, of, you know, of making it right, making it healthy, stable, uh, so that it's going to be able to, you know, further itself, don't we always think in terms of processes and strategy and structure and, and things like that? I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing of that in here. Paul doesn't say, well, get these kinds of uh, men together and, and formulate a meeting and then lay out a 10-point strategy on how you're going to do this thing. He does none of that. What's Paul talk about? He talks about discipleship. He's like, I want you to uh, to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and with men who have come to faith and have a little bit of character proven over time, I want you to uh, do some gospel centered discipleship so that you cause the church uh, in um, in these in these towns to flourish. And that really is what is going on in the midst of all that we're reading here. And the start point for for uh, in, in Paul's case was to put uh, put leaders in place, put the leaders in place. And it's going to make the church healthy. Healthy churches are led by healthy leaders. That's our big idea today. And so Paul says, put what remain in order and appoint elders in every town. As I directed you, the word that stands out for us, or at least that should stand out, is the word elder. Elder is the Greek word pres, uh, uh, presbyteros. It's where we get the term Presbyterian. If any of you have been in the Presbyterian strain or denomination of Protestantism, um, what's notable about uh, Presbyterians is that they believe in a form of government that focuses on um, the leadership of the church as a plurality of elders. I'm going to come back to that point in a second. Here, here's what we believe about elder in our in our country. When you say the word elderly, I've already used it in regards to something. Uh, I don't even know what I said, but I said elderly man. Uh, we think of old people, don't we? It's like, oh, you're elderly. Like you, you got a AARP card. They sent me an AARP card in the mail, by the way. I, I was offended. My my mom told me it was going to happen, and it happened. And like, I tore it up, and I tore it up in a second. It's like, what is this? Who do they think they're dealing with? We think of old people when we when we think of the word elder, um, and that's. It's kind of right, but it's not necessarily the context of what the Bible thinks about what the Bible is portraying when it uses the word elder. When the when the when the Bible is giving you this word elder, it's it's giving you the idea of someone that is not necessarily physically old, but they can't be spiritually young. They need to be spiritually mature. They have to have walked the Christian life for a little bit, succeeded and failed. They should love Jesus. They should know the scriptures. They should have worked the Christian life out a little bit. And Paul says elsewhere in 1 Timothy 3, which is the parallel passage to this in in Titus, he says an elder can't be a new convert. He shouldn't be because he's going to get conceited. He's going to get puffed up. He'll uh, he'll be greedy for gain and he'll use that platform to, to cause all kind of um, havoc and heck in the church. Um, so elder isn't a uh, it's not a foreign word in Scripture. We see it in the Old Testament. It was used of the leaders in the nation of Israel, um, of, of the elders of the tribes that would come together and obviously lead in various aspects. In the nations of the ancient Near East, it were the elders that um, sat at the city gate and uh, adjudicated um, cases of justice and led the city from the gates of the city. In the New Testament, uh, the Jewish leaders in the synagogue were called elders. The Sanhedrin, the, the 70 men who were the high court, were called elders. The Roman Senate were called elders. And so it's a common word 
in the uh, in the Bible. One other thing to point out about elder. Notice that when you see the word, it's plural with only a couple of exceptions in all the Bible. Every time we see elders, it's designated in the New Testament. It's always plural. Let me give you an example. Um, When you think about um, praying, praying for someone, James chapter five, verse 14 says, um, if you're if you're sick, call the elders, plural of the church, anoint them with oil. The prayer of faith is going to heal the sick. Okay. in similar cases, most of the time when we see elders used in uh, in the Bible, it's talking about not just one. It's talking about several. If you can think about that, I mean, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, would you want one lone joker just like. I mean, ruling the church and telling you how it's supposed to go versus having several people who have been vetted, who are spiritually mature, wise and have a gifting of God. I mean, which one is best? I think the the latter is best. A plurality of elders regarding elders. Paul gives Titus instructions in three areas in this text. Uh, He gives him three areas, family life, observable character over time and doctrine. That'll be our outline as we work through the text today. So verse six. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. One commentator um, comments on this, this idea of an elder being above reproach, which is the, the, the first of many things that Paul tells Titus that this, this man needs to be, these men need to be in terms of their, their calling as an elder. Um, one, uh, one commentator said, an elder should be unimpeachable. I mean, you shouldn't be able to an outsider or even an insider shouldn't be able to bring a charge against him that would discredit uh, God and his church. And uh, I was thinking about that. Of course, this being a political uh, political season, a long one already. Um, I mean, we've had some presidents of the United States that I would say they can be president, but they couldn't be a pastor over your church. Because their character overall would bring discredit upon God and his church. So that gives you a sense of the um, the importance, um, the serious nature of the, the men that we put over us in the church. And so uh, an elder that's above reproach, a, a man that's above reproach, he, he, needs, he needs to be a guy that you can't bring any charges against, which means we should scrutinize those that... Um, those that profess to be elders, those that want to be elders in our church. Uh, if you're a candidate for elder in any church, but definitely in our church, uh, we're going to talk to your family. Why? Because your family knows you best. They see you on your good days. They see you on your bad days. And they're right. I mean, you can ask my kids. Like this morning, I was having a bad day. We're going to talk to your employer because your employer knows your work ethic and your your level of honesty and integrity from a a professional standpoint. We're going to talk to your friends because you let your hair down around your friends, don't you? You do. You should. We're going to look at your social media. Why is that? Because tell it, take it out. You can find out everything about, well, everything about most people on social media. And so if you're doing jello shots every night and you're putting it on Facebook, you fool, we're going to, you know, we're going to find out. Because I would want to know that before I make you an elder of God's church, because we might not want you setting that example. It's not. And I'm not saying that doing a jello shot every once in a while might not be good for you. But I don't know if it's necessarily a thing that we want to portray to God's church. Right. I'm not being judgmental. 
Here's the thing. An, an elder, uh, a man that's above reproach, is the, it, it suggests an overall character. Men who are above reproach in all that they do. Paul continues, the husband of one wife. There's a lot of confusion over this phrase as to what it actually means. And there's at least four interpretations. I'm going to jump to the, the one that I think is the most accurate. And it's simply that a husband of one wife means that you are a man who's spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and sexually faithful to your spouse. One spouse. Just one. Not several. Not some on the side, not some hidden in the background, just one. Um, it, it, um, it does not mean that you have to be married. Obviously, Jesus and Paul weren't married. It doesn't mean that you can't be divorced and get remarried. Of course, the Bible has a lot, a lot to say on what a biblical divorce is. Okay, so you have to take all that into consideration. But it does mean that you should have only one wife. And for those of you um, that question whether uh, women can can uh, have this office. I mean, it says man of uh, one wife, the husband of one wife. Th- that's where we get the idea of of pastors, elders are are men and other. This would be the main proof text and, and um, verses like this in the Greek. This phrase, this phrase actually means a one woman man. So as an elder, you need to be a one woman man and. Obviously, this one's a stickler. Communications, power and, and, and sex, marriage are the areas that that we see that trip up uh, men in my position. And we hear about it na- uh, nationally and internationally for those who have international platforms because they they trip up in really in one of these areas, spiritually, emotionally, mentally or, or being sexually faithful to to one spouse. And I think I mean, just. To give you a, a simplistic answer is a lot of times uh, we give greater attention to the squeaky wheel, the, the person that's having trouble, the, the person that that seems to to need your care more than your primary care, which should be to to your family. I think uh, a man sometimes gets in trouble by spiritually and emotionally connecting to a wife that's not his spouse, praying a lot, um, giving attention to uh, a woman and her cares that are not his spouse. Should we care for all people? Absolutely. Are we supposed to pray for all kinds of people? Absolutely. But I think if you're doing that to neglect of your of your spouse, then um, then you're uh, getting ahead of yourself and, and, and potentially um, causing trouble for you and and the church. I think mentally it's allowing yourself to worry more about uh other women, but I would say that stretches into almost everything, worrying about anything and everything more than you would about your spouse, your wife. Um, sexually, it's choosing pornography, masturbation or another woman to satisfy you instead of your your own wife. Proverbs says, be satisfied with the with the wife of your youth. And that's what uh, a potential elder should be able to do. Paul continues. And his children are believers and are not open to the charge of debauchery or Insubordination, and so this continues the idea uh, that an elder's life uh, should be scrutinized in terms of how he leads his home. The word believer there is is more rightly trans trans uh, translated faithful. Okay, so uh, if you have the ESV Bible, you probably have a note there that says this word uh, really means faithful. So it's not saying that without call without you know you're as a pastor as an elder you're. Your children have to be saved. That's not what it's saying. Perhaps you're, suppose you're a young guy, like you're 30 or 
in that range, which most of y'all are. And you've got young kids that are five and below and they've yet to come to faith. Does that preclude you from being a, an elder because your kids haven't come to faith yet? I mean, think about what a man that's really aspiring and desperate to become an elder. He's like, man, you better believe in Jesus or I'm going to like you. Like, I mean, I can see that happening. I mean, <laughs> I can see a, a young aspiring man pulling his family along and like shaking them to Jesus uh, instead, of let, instead of letting the process happen naturally. Uh, also, uh, it, it, the Bible says that uh, you know, a, a parent, you, you can't force your kids to love Jesus. You're supposed to train them up in the way they're supposed to go. And uh, the, the proverb is that the, the wisdom is that if you train them up, then in the end, they're not going to stray. But it's not guaranteed. You know, a, a proverb is not a promise. It's not God is not saying this is going to happen without fail. You can take it to the bank. That's not what it's saying. It's like this is the wisdom of life for you. If you follow this, then in most cases, this is going to be the result that you're going to get. And so if you if you build character in your kids, you're going to they're going to manifest that same character at some point in the future. But it's not guaranteed. And so if you have an older kid that strays from the faith and you have done all those requisite things to build character in them as a young person, then you're not going to be forbidden from being an elder because that kid um, strays from the Lord. And that's uh, primarily seen. Um, in this further clause and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So what what the, the Bible is is suggesting, what Paul is saying to Titus is find men whose kids are submissive, that when uh, a dad uh, leads and, um, you know, leads his kids, he is following his instruction. They are obedient. You can tell that uh, the father has led their kids well by how the kids uh, are behaving, not not wiling out. That's the, the word debauchery or being insubordinate. Now, let me let me apply this a little bit, uh, because th- this is not just elder stuff. This is like for all y'all men in here. I, I hope you were listening. Um, th- this is a short list talking about family stuff. And it would be very easy for, for all of us to, to beat ourselves up, all of us men to beat ourselves up and, and heap shame on ourselves because we've fallen in one of these areas. We've done um, what Paul is telling Titus that we shouldn't do. But I think the truth is we can all do and be better husbands and fathers. Women should, should say amen. But this is what the Bible says. The Bible is the Bible doesn't say that um, we should be perfect men. It said we should be faithful. So, gentlemen, what is the what is the measure of our success as men leading our families? Because all of you that have Wives and kids in the room, you're an elder. You're pastoring, shepherding, overseeing your own family, whether you're doing it for God's church or not. It's faithfulness. God wants you to be faithful to his word and and as best as you can in the community of the saints to lead and steer your family Godward by the gospel. That's what he's that's what he's looking for. And of course, if you're going to be an elder in the church, we have to see that model in your home before we would let you do it in the church. Is there a general pattern of faithfulness? I love how the Bible gives agricultural examples for a lot of things. And I think this in this case, this this one um, picture kind of help kind of helps. A lot of times you know, a family can be likened as a, as a garden. Um, if there are thorns and thistles, 
in the garden of your family, then that may, that may be an indicator that the gardener, the, 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 the man of the house, has neglected some responsibilities. Okay, it, it probably is true. At the same time, if the family is flourishing, everything's green, relationships are good, relationships with each other, but also with God are, are good, then that may be an indicator that the man is, is doing some things right. But here's what the Bible says. And, and really, the parallel passage, 1 Timothy 3, says this um, overtly. It says, if you can't lead a wife and a few kids, you're not going to be able to lead a congregation of adults. And that, I mean, I've seen that come to true. All right. So family first. And then uh, Paul skips to the idea of observable character over time. And he gives six negative and six positive traits. Verse seven. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Verse 8, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Um, let me make a comment about uh, just up front about the word overseer. Uh, some see this term, and, um, and it's, it's, it's also translated as bishop. If you got a King James or a New American Standard or perhaps a Revised Standard Version Bible, if anybody still uses that, uh, you're going to see the word bishop. And they see this word overseer and think that Paul has just transitioned. First, he was talking about elders. And now he's talking about overseers. He's got these, these are two different offices. And I would tell you, that's not what Paul is doing. Paul was a learned man. And all y'all are learning in here. And sometimes we just use different words to, to convey ourselves. Right. Because we're showing off our our fanciness of being able to to use prose. And I don't know if Paul is exactly doing that, but he is using the same term to mean the same thing. These are all the same office. Uh, there actually are only two offices in the church. First Timothy three says there are elders and there are deacons. OK, elders lead the church governmentally. Deacons serve the church. I, you know, sometimes people add, I would add this, members of the church, okay? And that would be the, the congregation. Uh, all of that makes the church flourish. And so, uh, pastor, uh, poimen in the Greek, elder, presbyteros, uh, bishop or overseer, uh, episkopos, are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. They all refer to the same office. Some of you come from um, perhaps Catholic backgrounds where you've seen the, the hierarchy of bishops and cardinals leading up to the pope. And um, you don't see those words in scripture, which means they're man-made, a man-made hierarchy of, of man just, you know, and I'm not saying it, I'm not judging it, saying it's wrong. It's just not in the Bible. Some of you come from Pentecostal backgrounds where you've got bishops that are over churches. Some of y'all got apostles, you know, come from backgrounds where you got apostles. Remember last week, you got the big A apostles, you got the little A apostles. God ain't making no more big A apostles. He does gift men to, um, you know, to further the church by church planning and entrepreneurial efforts. Uh, but these these words are all interchangeable. Paul is not tripping us up, giving us a new term. So much so as if you go back to first, first uh, Timothy three, one, Paul opens this. This is a parallel passage to Titus. He says this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to office of an overseer, the word overseer, he desires a noble task. And then he gives the same the, the same spiel. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. So, I mean, he he's saying the same thing. OK, and he's using different words to say it. I know I just beat that. I beat that up. But I just wanted you to know, you know, sometimes we just got to turn to the Bible. It's like, well, what does the Bible say? 
Okay, bishop, overseer, pastor, um, it, they're all one office. For an overseer is God's steward, must be above reproach. Okay, Paul's used this term, above reproach, one more time. I mean, it's like he's saying, ding, ding, ding. Hey, if you didn't get it the first time, I'm going to say it again. Like, listen up. If you don't hear me, do not put a scoundrel up there leading my church that's not been vetted and who's not above reproach. Why? Because they're going to hurt themselves. They're going to hurt their own family. And more importantly, they're going to hurt the sheep of God's church. He says, don't do it. It's like Lecrae's song. Don't do it. Don't do it. And then he gives us six negative character traits. This is what an elder is not to be. Verse seven. He must not be arrogant or quick tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Can I be honest? All right. Check it out. This list is convicting me. Like, right. I'm just like right in front of you. Naked standing. And I'm not naked. But all right. So it's convicting me because I've done some of these things and I might have even done one of them like recently. And it should be convicting you, too. And here's why. Because this reminds us of all the things that we need to put to death by God's grace, um, you know, as we aspire and serve as elders. And, and men, this is speaking to you loudly. And women, you're not neglect, dismiss at all. It speaks to all of us in terms of those things that we should be doing by the gospel, you know, Holy Spirit inspiring us and helping us so that we're leading our families rightly. Okay, that's what that's what these verses are saying to us. So an elder is not to be arrogant. What's the opposite of being arrogant? Humble. So an arrogant shouldn't be arrogant because Jesus was not arrogant. He was humble. Philippians says he was humble to the point of dying on a cross. We learn in John that he was humble enough that he took his clothes off, put a towel around his waist and washed the nasty feet of some of his closest friends. I mean, would you I mean, some of y'all are really close friends in here. Do you want to wash your friends nasty, stinky feet? No. Right. I don't even want to wash my kids feet. I'm sorry. Some of y'all are still washing your kids feet. You get past that. <laughs> An elder is not to be arrogant. They're not to be quick tempered. Uh, that means they're not to have a short fuse. Um, why? Because God is said to be slow to anger. You hear this beautiful refrain in the Old Testament. God is not slow to anger, but he's I mean, he's loving, kind and, he, and he's merciful. Elders are supposed to be slow to anger because because God is. Um, can you imagine uh, a shepherd and all the things that sheep do with the shepherd? OK, they poop on him. They're nasty. Their hair has to be cleaned out when he's trying to feed him. They bite him. I mean, that's that's the picture that we get of, of shepherds and sheep. Put, I mean, and think about that in context of the church. Uh, the, the truth is there are things that happen in the context of relationship in a church where. You know. Sheep poop and stink and bite each other, but also the person that's the people that are leading them. And it would be a bad shepherd overseer that just like punched the sheep out in the neck. It's like, wouldn't that bitch be jacked up? It's like, I'm just going to take, I'm going to choke you if you don't get your life right. (laughs) 
Now, I have to admit, I've thought that once a time, once a time or two, but I've never done it. I mean, you just can't like punch somebody out when they sin. That would not be the right thing to do. Elders aren't supposed to be drunkards. Can you believe? Can you like see me tying one on like last night, and then coming in like turn your Bible to Titus? Regards, Paul, a servant. Y'all reading with me? I mean, with that. I mean, I'm being, I'm being crazy, but that just—it's not right. The Bible doesn't forbid elders drinking. All right. So those of you that come from backgrounds where uh, your your leaders, your pastors couldn't drink at all, uh, uh, there is a such thing as Christian license in in the Bible that you are free to um, to exercise liberty. Okay, but the the instruction of the Bible is that we're not supposed to cause people to sin by our liberty. And so if if me drinking is going to cause someone close to me or someone from afar to to stumble. okay, then I'm supposed to be willing to give it up for the sake of the gospel. okay, that's the instruction in Scripture. But it doesn't forbid me necessarily from from drinking. But I'm not supposed to get drunk. And and that's a little bit of wisdom in that. Uh, he says they're not supposed to be violent or pugnacious. Uh, they're not to be greedy for gain. And this really is the one that trips up a lot of people. Um, and this is not just in a monetary sense of of gaining stuff. Um, if you aspire to eldership, First Timothy three says it's a good thing. It's a noble thing. But some people aspire to eldership for the wrong reasons. Uh, when you become a, a person standing over other people, um, even saying what the Bible says, you can feel a sense of power and of privilege and of prestige in that. And the, uh, the exhortation from from uh, from Paul to Titus is uh, don't put anybody up there that's going to want to exalt themselves. Uh, if they want to puff themselves up, if they want prestige and power, uh, that's really being greedy for gain. And that's not the that's not how an elder is supposed to be. Why? Because we're here to serve Christ and and his bride. Not here to puff yourself up. Elders aren't supposed to be greedy for gain. All right. So after saying those six negative things, Paul tells Timmy, this is what elders are to be. And he gives eight positive traits that elders are supposed to take up. Verse eight. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. I'm not going to for the sake of time. I'm not going to break all these down. I think they're um, they're pretty self-explanatory. But here's the idea. Uh, Paul is saying. Uh, a person that is a potential elder, a person that aspires to to be an elder, um, he needs to be a godly man. And that takes us all the back all the way back to to verse one. Paul says, I'm a servant and an apostle of Christ Jesus for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness. What's Paul said? God has put me on the planet to help you gain truth about who God is and what he's come to do. But more importantly, that you would know him and that life in him would lead you to be godly, pious, reverent, holy. OK, and that is the overall character that an elder is supposed to be. And that I would tell you, that's what we're looking for. Um, so let's sum this all up. Notice, I mean, have you have you seen any spe- uh, specific skills or attributes um, or like high lofty um Previous titles other than what you've seen here. I mean, is that in the text that this person has to have a whole bunch of skills, technical stuff? Uh, There really is none of that here. It's it's actually been all godliness, the the morality of the person that is a potential elder. And I think that's what God cares about. Uh, The most important thing that he wants to tell us about elders is, is let's look at their character. Let's look at their house, their home life. Let's look at their character and let's look at their home. 
Okay, and if you see good things there, then uh, potentially you're going to see good things as that person is turned loose to, to lead in the church. And lastly, Paul does one more thing. He tells us what an elder must do. And this is where we get into the job description of an elder. And the last area is, is one of doctrine. Verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so you want to know what an elder does? I mean, this is not all that an elder does, but it's a, it's a major part of his duty. It's holding, the, it's, it's holding to the authority of the Bible, understanding doctrine, knowing theology. And then when Paul says able to give instruction, that simply means uh, he's able to teach it. OK, so that, I mean, if you're if you're thinking aspiring to be a leader in God's church, then you got to sort of meet this this particular qualification above all the rest. And, and then we're going to get into this next week. He says one other thing an elder is supposed to be able to do is rebuke those who have false teaching, uh, who have false thoughts about God. This is what an elder is supposed to do. The primary thing on Paul's mind here is rightly handling, applying and teaching the gospel because the gospel sits at the center of all that we are and all that we believe as Christians. And so as an elder over God's people, you're supposed to know his word, love his word, live his word. And you're courageous enough to uh, to correct those who are teaching, saying and, and speaking something other than uh, than what God presents to us in his word. Now, let's let's take the last few minutes and, and apply this because I don't want you to say, well, my pastor talked about church government and elders, and uh, I don't think I want to be an elder. And so, I mean, I don't know if I learned anything this morning. Let's just go out and eat. All right. So <laughs> I don't want you all to do that because, you know, as church people, we sometimes do that. I've done it. You do it, too. Here's what we're talking about. We're talking about healthy churches. What does it mean to be a healthy church? And for whatever reason, it's an obvious reason. Paul starts with the leaders. He says you cannot have a healthy church if you don't have healthy leaders. OK. And he he's specifically talking about, you know, the uh, the governmental leaders of the church. But I think in many ways this filters down to to all of us in some point, because I'm in a room full of people who lead in the government, who lead in the military. And if you who lead in our education system and if you aren't leading there, if you're an older brother of a young brother or sister, you're leading your brothers and sisters. And if not that, you're a parent leading little, little kids. Right. So all of us have uh, an element, a requirement for leadership in our lives. And, and and these verses mean something to all of us, particularly, though, as we are uh, looking at the church. And so first, I would tell you some of you here and I know this. Some of you here are interested in church leadership. You aspire to one day be an elder. And here's what First Timothy three says. It's a noble task. So the first thing is you got to aspire. And that aspire is a, is, is a big word. That means you got to want it in your heart and you got to want to um, you got to want to do those things that help you meet the requirements. Um, and, and Paul puts that up front in several passages in Scripture, because what you're doing is you're incurring the burden um, that, that Paul articulated. He had of shepherding the the people of God. And I would tell you. When you take on the burden, you you love what people love. You you um, you hurt when they hurt. Uh, you hurt when they don't hurt. You hurt when they sin. Um, you see the life they should live and, and want that for them. And you you groan when they don't listen to you. I mean, he's saying, you know, it's, it's like 
it's a good burden, but it's a burden that you you're welcoming yourself to when you aspire to be an elder. And so for those of you who aspire to church leadership, this text is helpful for you because it gives you some specifics that you can compare your life to and say, well, if I want this, but how do I get there? He's telling you what your home life, what your character life looks like, and then doctrinally, theologically, what you need to be working toward as you aspire to uh, be a leader in God's church. I would tell you, uh, we, I am the only elder of our church right now. Why? Because we're a church plant. We started from just me and my family and a few, and a few other families from North Carolina. But pretty much since the, the six-month end, we have been working towards being a, a church that has a plurality of elders. And so twice a month, Around our table at our office, we have some men that are sitting amongst you right now who in the morning, Tuesday mornings, we talk about doctrine and theology. And then Thursday night, uh, once a month, we talk about character and, and we pray. We're, we're setting chemistry for what it looked like for us to be um, together as elders leading the, this church. And um, the ones sitting at the table aren't the only ones that should be there. There's some of you here in this room that have calling and perhaps aspiration to be elders. And so um, the ones sitting at the table already, I approached. I approached all of them because I saw it in them already, either from my community group or uh, or from their life. Um, and that doesn't mean I haven't seen the rest of you yet. But if you are one that aspires to be an elder, then, I mean, perhaps you need to be at the table working towards it. I mean, overtly working towards it. That's what I would offer you. The second thing is that the congregation has a role to play. You got a role to play. And that is it's two words to, to watch and to pray for your elders. There is a go between um, a slight checks and balances, if you will. And, and I like to say it like this. As the elders go, so goes the church. So if you got weak elders, not not leaning, you know, not preaching what the Bible says, weak in their in their character in your interpretation of the Bible, then that's going to uh, produce a, a weak church in all those different areas. Uh, it, it's, it's just how it happens. And you see it when something happens in a church. You see, you see it on the newspaper. You see it on, in the Internet. Here's what um, the writer of Hebrews says in regards to these ideas. Watch and pray. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember your elders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Uh, emphasis. Remember your elders. OK, I'm taking license here. That's talking about praying for you. If you know who the elders are, then you're supposed to remember them by praying for them. OK, keeping them in your thoughts and uh, and prayerfully supporting them because they, you know, he <laughs> they need so support. This is this is a very humble sentence here that Paul is saying. Paul would later say, follow me as I follow Christ. You know, that's that's really what a leader of the church is, is echoing. Follow me as I follow Christ, which means your your life is under a microscope. Uh, but again, that's the burden of leadership. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. And then he goes on in verse 17 to say, obey your leaders and submit to them for their keeping watch over your souls as those who will give have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And, and your eyes are probably trained on obey, obey your leaders and submit to them. I think the most important part, important part for me as an elder is this, for their keeping watch over your souls and those who will have to give an account. I got to give an account for, for y'all. And that, sometimes that scares me. Because some of you I, I know very well, some of you I need to know better so that I can give an appropriate 
account. I can intercede for you in your lives and I can provide the shepherding that I'm supposed to as as a pastor over over God's flock. Okay, and so that that's how you that's why you obey and submit, because you have people who are going to God, as Jesus does for us, interceding for you and presenting you before God, that you would be all that he would call you to be and more. Thirdly, to make this very applicable to all of us and to be clear, these aren't requirements for elders only. And I've said that a couple of times throughout my sermon. Um, And here's the thing. It's not as if an elder can be a drunkard and you can't. I mean, you can just go get drunk whenever you want. I mean, the Bible suggests that we're all supposed to be filled with the spirit and not be drunkards. It's not as if an elder has to be faithful to his spouse and you can just sleep around. Right. It's not as if an elder shouldn't be quick tempered, but you can be, you know, a a jerk in all parts of your life, flipping people off because they say the wrong word to you, cut you off in traffic. I mean, those kinds of things. We aren't supposed to be those kinds of people, period. Um, D.A. Carson, noted Bible scholar, says these actually are not requirements just for elders. They're requirements for all Christians. The most remarkable feature of this list is not remarkable. These, I mean, these aren't remarkable things in terms of elders are supposed to do these and do them singularly and no one else. He says it contains nothing about intelligence, decisiveness, drive, wealth, power. Almost everything on this list is elsewhere in the New Testament and required of all believers, except for verse nine, which says you have to be able to teach sound doctrine. He goes on to say, elders are first of all to be exemplars of the Christian graces that are mandated to all Christians. As Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. I'll end by saying, I mean, it's the gospel that leads us to spiritual health. Okay, and so if if having a healthy church starts with having healthy leaders, then we definitely want that. But for all of us, it's the gospel that produces that health. And if you're a leader here, then then here's what the gospel says to you. It says you lead uh, out of humble submission to, to Jesus because he was humbly submitted to his father to the point of his death. And the good news for us is that Jesus was perfect in all of his ways, died a fitful death, went to the cross in our place for our sins so that we don't have to. He was perfect because we can't be. And God received his beautiful sacrifice in our place for our sin that we deserved. And it frees you to lead courageously, to lead humbly, to lead in, not in your own strength, but to, to lead in the strength that God and only God can provide. And so what's what's a what's a healthy church? It's, it's a it's full of healthy leaders, not just at the you know, at the pastor overseer level, but at multiple levels. Leaders in the kids ministry, leaders over the departments, leaders in, in worship, because we are all recipients of the great gospel of God that gives us um that helps us be healthy from an inside perspective so that God is magnified through our leadership. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that it would be beneficial for all of us. More importantly, God, that, you know, as we're reading about healthy churches and healthy leaders, that you would um, make us a healthy church. God, we want to be a church that's so healthy that we shine in our city and we make you known, not just by what we do, but what we stand for. God, give us an understanding of of the order and government of your church and give us both the courage and the wherewithal to do it. I pray especially for the men in this room who 
uh, hearing this, I mean, their, their hearts have been stirred, uh, their minds are thinking, um, and, and they know they need to take the next step. And it may be a step of presenting themselves uh, uh, as a potential elder. And, and definitely, we're not saying we're going to just crown somebody an elder next week. Uh, but for those who hear, hear your call and uh, are willing to, uh, to, to bear the burden of working towards being a leader in your house, uh, we pray that you continue to stir them. Uh, God, stir our congregation to love you, to serve you, to obey you. And uh, God, that our church would look like the church that Paul is encouraging Titus to have in Crete. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.